Welcome to Affectively, a podcast mini-series exploring the intersection between self-organizing and emotions. Emotions. They are there all the time, everywhere, and yet we know so little about them. Self-organizing. What happens when we move from traditional power over to power with structures and cultures? Join me in these conversations with practitioners and researchers to better understand other possibilities of working and relating together. I hope you enjoy the Effectively mini-series hosted within The How, a podcast by Greater Than. Thank you for being here with me, Bernhard, and uh, recording the, this podcast episode. Just wanted to start by saying why um, did I invite Bernhard Resch uh, for this and just uh, start introducing him a little bit. So I invited Bernhard because uh, he actually, it was through reading one of his papers that I thought, ah, you know, this is an area that you can research and the way that you did it and the types of topics uh, that you did. And that was the starting point for me to start focusing and stop just exploring and saying, okay, what, what is it that I want to do? So yeah, you have a couple of papers that were key in uh, bringing me that to that moment. And um, also specifically one of them, I have been using it a lot in my research. So then I thought, okay, let's uh, bring you on to this episode uh, of the podcast so that I can also share with other fellow practitioners what are the insights from your research that you have been doing now for quite a few uh, years in this area of radical self-organizing, that you call it, and also the affective uh, dynamics. But before diving uh, deeper into it, just to mention, like, what what is it that you're doing at the moment, let's say from a... Um, professional lenses. You're in the organization sciences of the University of Amsterdam, if I have this information correctly. You're also, though, um, practicing at the moment. You're a senior consultant as well on some of the topics that you research or have researched. And uh, you have also been a lecturer in strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship at the University of Sydney Business School. And then I have seen that you have also been in different universities in different roles. So yeah, you have been around this world for quite a while. And yeah, I would invite you now to just complete this introduction whatever way you want, if you want to share a bit of information about yourself. Yeah, thank you, Alicia, uh, for this kind introduction and also congratulations uh, for being a reader of my papers because I think statistically it's, I don't know, an academic academic paper has uh, uh, approximately seven readers. Uh, so uh, that's uh, uh, you're one of the seven. And uh, thanks for this invitation. Thanks for reading my work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm I'm an organizational scientist. Uh, that's uh, that's what I get paid for. And um, I like to to research uh, new organizational forms. Um, yeah, I, I've been in, in companies that want to work without bosses, without hierarchies, um, also with social entrepreneurs, co-working spaces or uh, online communities, peer-to-peer -peer communities. My special focus is really or has evolved over time to this uh, relational side of uh, yeah, self-organizing or collaborative work. Mm. Yeah, and, and just I want to ask you, like, 
how did you get to this relational aspect? Because I find it very interesting that it took you there. Mm -hmm. Just to mention, we're going to link, let's say, the two main papers. Maybe there's even like a third one that you want to reference. Mm -hmm. uh, the two of them are pure collaboration as a relational practice, theorizing effective oscillation in radical self democratic organizing, and an effective control in new collaborative work, communal fantasies of purpose, growth, and belonging. And yeah, I'm already very excited in diving <laughs> into those two. But how did you get into that topic of relationality? Yeah, yeah, it's the story behind the research. Um, I've actually I've I've done my master's in political science, and then I've worked for a couple of years in all kinds of different jobs as a journalist and as a public affairs consultant or lobbyist. Uh, and so on. And um, yeah, like many people, I got a bit disillusionized by the by the experience and um, uh, by all the hierarchies. And uh, I, I found that there is a lot of, you know, organized infantility in, the, in our workplaces. Uh, and I also couldn't understand why. Yeah, if, if 10 people are working together in a company, why only one person is the investor and uh, all the others or the owner and all the others are just uh, employees. And mm. At first, I think I was inspired by the work of um, of Gary Hamel, who is one of these management gurus and works like a hierarchy buster. And he came up with this uh, with this case study of a uh, of a yeah, very uh, industrial company. Um, it's called Morningstar. Um, uh, you probably know it, and and they are an industrial company uh, canning tomatoes, but working without these management hierarchies since, I don't know, 30 years or even longer and successfully. And I just thought to myself, oh, my God, <laughs> uh, why is this not more uh, yeah, uh, widespread? And and so I, I came with this interest, you know, actually, is there an alternative to hierarchy? And like most people with this interest in techniques and methods and uh, finding an alternative to hierarchies and is flatness possible? So that was my my starting point. And I, I started to interview people uh, you know, in bossless organizations and did art of hosting training, so participatory facilitation training and theory U and, and so on. And um, people always told me, uh, yeah, in the end with those interviews, the techniques are really good. You know, we have all these kind of different techniques for consent decision making and for, you know, beyond budgeting. We don't need to have these annual reviews and annual budgets. And there, for every kind of work process, there is a good technique, actually. Uh, but where it really kind of stops or where the problems occur is values and worldviews. That's what people always said to me. But I, when I asked what are those values and worldviews, nobody could give me an answer. And so um, that triggered in a way my interest. And then I knew I, I had to do a more, I had to go beyond interviews as a researcher and do an ethnographic case study as an observer. And um that's what led me to uh, New Zealand doing a case study there yeah, with an organization within Spiral. That was back in 2016 that you went there. Yeah, yeah, in 2016. Yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, already a long time ago. <laughs> and you were within Spiral, I think, 18 months. So a year mm -hmm, That's off. true. Yeah, yeah. And it was, um, yeah, very... Very good experience at that time. And Spiral was one of those uh, outspoken organizations about how they work differently with each other and also open. One of the few who were really open to um, ethnographic research. It's a very intrusive research because you have the researcher with a notebook uh, in, in the meeting room or at uh, events all the time. 
Um, but it was a yeah, it was generally for me a very transformative time in um, in New Zealand and later also in uh, in Australia where I worked as a lecturer. Because of the uh, indigenous cultures there, I, I I worked a lot with indigenous pr group work practitioners then as well, which also yeah, inspired my thinking a lot because uh, yeah, we, there is a lot to learn, I think. Uh, oh, I bet. Yeah, those must, must have been exciting times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned uh, you were, these two points were values and worldviews. And mm. how did you get them into the relational aspect of these affective dynamics. Mm. Yeah, of course, um, hmm, to start. I, I think as a researcher, I of course, I looked at the literature mm. and, and what the literature said was, um, of course, they said one, one thing that's really important for this kind of collaborative or self-organized ways of working is that we have deliberation, good deliberation. So not the manager doing command and control, but... Uh, consent decision making, um, um, but also not also consent, but also dissent in a way. So people, I think the difficult thing about maintaining a good participatory communication culture is is always keeping keeping uh, the nays, yeah, uh, allowing people to say no, to say the, the sort of, or to invite new people who are new to the organization to um, to bring their their critical observations to the table. Uh, so there is always uh, this kind of tension between a good uh, deliberation, but also, uh, yeah, uh, dissent and consent. So that was one thing that was said in the literature. And the other thing I think that I found was this um, going away from uh, from this culture of planning and um, controlling to a culture of experimentation. And, and I mean, that's, of course, a, a big one. That's That's one of those worldview things, I think, because... Yeah, um, uh, people say this um, discourse of engineering and of planning and controlling and forecasting is really a master narrative of modernity. So it's it's one of those very deep things we believe in in the last 500 years or so on. So getting to a culture of experimentation, which, of course, agile, for example, is very good at. Um, so these were the things I found in the in the literature. And then I found some vague references to, yeah, solidarity, uh, hospitality, friendship, you know, it comes from a more uh, uh, alternative literature on communes or solidarity ec economies. But it was a bit vague. And, and so I thought I, I need to go to, a, to an organization and look, what are they actually doing? What are their relational activities? Um, and, and that's what I did at Inspiral. And uh, yeah, in this paper, I come up with, uh, with three, weaving, sharing and caring. And um, mm. yeah. We can go deeper into that. <laughs> yeah, I found that very interesting. There's a um, sentence uh, from your paper that I have here in front of me that says that in particular, we argue that radical democratic organizing to fill the void of hierarchical decision making requires exceptional relational work that comes with its own affective tensions and ambiguities. Mm -hmm. And um, and then exactly, you talk about deliberation and reflexivity. And um, yeah, and well, I was uh, going through lots of specific uh, paragraphs of your paper, but one of them, um, or the reflection I was having as I was going through all of it again, it was, ah, okay, you know, it's part of the work, because I think that sometimes uh, what happens is, um, or I had a send, heard something like this with a colleague of mine a few weeks ago, it was like, oh, you know, we're more, we're doing more reflection than we're doing work. 
which is not mm. true. But sometimes you get to this point, it's like, oh my God, we're reflecting all the time. Can we just, you know, get to it and and do it? But for me, it was nice to see from my research point of view that, you know, that's part, and although we know it, but it's a nice reminder to say, you know, that's part of the work because this is a complete different paradigm than the one we're used to in this doing, doing, yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, and more in this, um, yeah, reflection space, which for me was, yeah, I don't know, already one of the things, okay, you know, it's also <laughs> in the research, it's also, it's okay, that's fine and always in balance. But um, yeah, I did um, appreciate that. And now what you were going into uh, was this sort of like effective um, cartography or this effective oscillations mm. uh, that you were mentioning Um or you, well, you were starting to talk about the different activities, right? The weaving, the sharing, yeah, and, yeah. and then the affective oscillation within those. Would you want to elaborate, explain a little bit um, the mm-hmm. model, maybe what you came up with, and what can it mean uh, for other praxis? I think that would be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, first of all, uh, reacting to what you say, I think that's uh, that's really a good point to push. I mean, reflection, uh, retrospectives, that's... Probably uh, a colleague of mine always says, uh, if uh, if he if one thing that should people take away from his from his training in participatory organizing, it's the importance of retrospectives, uh, and that's uh, really the truth. I, I also I'm reminded of a, a study by the Australian tech company Atlassian, who are very big on teamwork. They have, I think. Of successful teams, I think 97% of the successful teams uh, in their study they do retrospectives, and uh, it's. Um, I think it's it's also it's all often kind of also an excuse to say we don't have time for for mm-hmm. sitting together for two hours every week or every two weeks and reflect on how we are working. But actually, it's it's really often we don't know how to talk about these things, um, how to talk about um, how we work together, uh, about our ego reflexes and so on. Um, but if we if uh, or I think if teams learn that, that's uh, that's really already one big step <laughs> yeah yeah and exa- I, I would be interested it's like what are the tools that we can take also from research mm. put into uh, that reflection and I think maybe affective yeah. oscillations um, in the way I interpret it but yeah, yeah I'm curious to hear it uh, directly from you like what are the hints what are the things that it can give us to reflect on okay where yeah. do we stand where are we at where should we yeah. go back to I think I would start with the with the activities I saw because then it maybe becomes a bit clearer what this affective oscillation is. Um, yeah, I mean, in general, I, what I saw is that the notion of community uh, was much more present, a collaborative community, than in the industrial workplace where it's uh, mostly about individuals, uh, individual performance, uh, individual authority relationships and so on. And And I think in these new ways of working, the term of community or the notion of community comes back and yeah community works through relationships through emotion through effects through um uh yeah through yeah the all too human uh comes back into organizing much stronger i think and and yeah f- f- the activities what, what i saw was a very different form of leadership that uh, i termed just uh weaving so not management but weaving and i think uh it's important to say that it's not there is not a viva, not one person who is uh, uh, who becomes the new uh, kind of manager. But I see it more as a distributed uh, activity uh, with people taking on different tasks. Um, and and yeah, this weaving, I, I I saw that it's 
you know, if you have this distributed form of organizing with many self-organized teams coming together, one really important leadership activity was to keep the flow in the network. Um, so to do some kind of yeah newsletters, for example, or blogging, uh, bringing people together, introducing people. So having a bit of an overview of what's actually happening and summarizing for, summarizing it for people and bringing bringing people together, and then also to point to pain points and um, maybe instigate working groups and so on to um, to uh, yeah to do something about it, but not not while taking the lead, but more like catalyzing action um bringing people together who could do it um and and of course facilitation as a last thing that was very present in in, in spiral in my case study where i mean participatory facilitation is a big thing nowadays in this in, in this in this sphere and there are uh, you know there are liberating structures and art of hosting and theory you and you can do uh, a lot um uh, but what I what I really saw in an organization where this kind of knowledge or this skill was spread uh, and more people were able to do it was really, uh, for me, very impressive at that point, uh, kind of co-facilitation. So when Inspiral held a workshop, people were doing hand signals, you know, in 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 inaudible clapping and, and so on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, everyone was not just the facilitator was inviting quiet voices, for example, but everyone was doing some sort of facilitation all the time. And that was, I think, is, is incredibly powerful. It's an experience that not many people had. Uh, but um, yeah, I can say a uh, pay testament that it's, it feels very alive and very powerful. So I think, yeah, this weaving uh, was uh, a new kind of leadership practice, what I saw. And then I saw also... Um, a kind of tension between sharing and caring. So uh, sharing became very important. Um, in, in uh, uh, I mean, it's it's this Breenie Brown storyline. Uh, you know, vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity, and I think it's it's true. Um, so there need to be there need to be more personal, more trusted, uh, safe relationships, and so um, all these little measures of check-ins um, and going on retreats and many other different. Um, uh, practical uh, things to yeah to increase the um, the trust and and um, the emotional repertoire in, in a way in the organization mm. and um yeah and that's that's where the effective uh, oscillation uh also came in because what i saw also was um that the issue of care became really uh, a bottleneck or a pain point um, because yeah, I mean, we are generally probably not not very good at care in also in mainstream organizations or in traditional ways of working. But if there is no HR and if there is no manager, of course, who cares uh, for you know who who listens to people when they have a conflict? Who you know uh, uh, who organizes birthday presents? Uh, who goes for people you know with people for a coffee when they have a difficult situation and so on? All this this work that is seldomly acknowledged because all that counts is uh, profit. Um, we don't know how to deal with it. And what I saw in, in my case study was that um, there was a very strong uh, female uh, leadership uh, cohort at that time. Um, and they did actually a lot of this care work informally. Um, and um, it was not really acknowledged at that, uh, at that time. And so as a consequence, many of those uh, people, uh, uh, they... They burned out or left the network. Um, so I think, um, yeah, care uh, is uh, distributed care is really 
uh, it's, it's really one of those big open questions also for research. I mean, there are some practical um, practical methods that that I saw in organizations. I saw a German organization that had a uh, they called it a community a community also Gemeinschaftsamt. So a community okay. office, uh, they call it a community office, very bureaucratic, but um, uh, that was also kind of ironic. Uh, so a rotating group of three that said, okay, for the next half year, we are we are dealing more with those interpersonal issues. Or Inspiral also had these kind of, um, uh, came up with this idea of, uh, of livelihood pods or of, of the idea of pods of five, around five people coming together for, for a certain amount of time. Uh, to support each other in yeah personally or, or with learning so there are there are interesting solutions but it is definitely a, a huge topic how to distribute care and how to yeah acknowledge it also yeah so it was from the experience of care i understand that you started thinking about these oscillations yeah. um yeah. so yeah you described the acti activities now um weaving mm -hmm. caring and sharing yeah. Yeah. And within each of them, you have uh, these oscillations. So where we're talking about now about care, so it's trust and exhaustion. Let's say the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that. And then we have from sharing exuberance and anxiety. Yeah. And then we had from the third or the first one, uh, weaving is confidence and frustration. Yeah. So, yeah. Could you talk a little bit? What is the interpretation or how could we understand yeah. that? effective oscillation and yeah maybe i can describe it with uh with some examples or with also my own experience um yeah what uh what i saw or what i uh yeah what i reflected on was was really that the organization or i mean you can say uh what held the organization together or what gave it its uh, buzz or, th or th uh, drive was really these collective rhythms of emotions uh, mm -hmm. and affective rhythms and so with weaving for example yeah confidence and frustration what's that what does this mean yeah in, in, a, in a decentralized organization like that you could easily become you know do something if you if you showed up to do something uh, raised your hand to do work on a project or organize an event or something you can very easily you know uh, move something in contrast to a traditional organization where it takes you years to uh, to to raise up the go up the ladder and then uh, yeah uh, shape some projects here you know if you show up uh, you do something and that's of course very powerful it's a very powerful experience for for most uh, people um, that's maybe easier to experience in your neighborhood community or your fr uh, friendship group than uh, when you organize a party than than at work so there is there is this potential for confidence for for experiencing uh, yeah self-efficacy for for, for 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 moving something but on the other hand it easily uh kind of oscillates into a feeling of frustration of course because yeah in a self-organized network we all uh, know it from uh, from from open source communities for example there is this 991 rule where you have 90 percent of people who are just lurking around and yeah part of the community nine percent who are um somewhat active and 1% who is really the core, the organizing core. So with volunteer work, you always have this problem of who who is at the center and who drives things. So, of course, um, there is an, uh, there is uh, 
frustration easily sets in if you are if you are uh, yeah if you are active and motivated because people they are not, most people are not as active as you and and you are alone and sometimes somebody says uh, no for reasons that you don't understand and and puts in a veto uh, so so there is this uh, confidence frustration uh, that I observed. Yeah, and how yeah. could we? So my my taking and we were exchanging emails uh, based on that. So my way of applying it would be to know, okay, if I'm aware of this framing and you know I have these three main activities, let's say, and there is this oscillation, for me it's a sort of awareness exercise of knowing, ah, you know, I can come here and I can do things and I can be active, and at the same time I know, well, at some point, frustration will kick in. But then it's also okay, you know. What? Okay, now I'm here. I'm in the frustration. Mm. What can I do to move back to um, confidence again and kind of like yeah. not stuck there and then not have to have these burnouts on just kind of like knowledge and then kind of try to swing swing back. But yeah, I would like to hear more if that was the initial intention or if other people have interpreted this in different ways through time. Yeah. Um... Good question that you ask. I mean, maybe um, maybe it's even more than something individual. I mean, it, it comes back to this notion of affect. Um, so in uh, in this literature or like academically, we we often use these <laughs> these terms a bit differently. So uh, normally, you know, affect is something individual. I act out of an affect. This is a kind of compulsive act. I kill someone because. Uh, I'm overtaken by by emotions, um, but here, uh, what what I meant with affect, or what I also saw here, uh, is actually that affect. There is something in our social relations that is collective. So we are, of course, individuals, but um, there is a collective affect as well. So for a good example is for me always always an atmosphere. You know, when I go to a concert or to a football match. Or to a, to a funeral, you know, you immediately know when you enter a room and there are there is a group of people, something happens. You feel an atmosphere. You feel lifted. You feel, you know, okay, this is a funeral. Now I uh, there there is a certain atmosphere in the room. So there is um, something about us as social beings um, that is faster as our thoughts in a way. There are these uh, in the literature we say co-subjective circuits of um, of affect. Uh, so one could also say like biochemical reactions that turn into goose pumps or something yeah, that connect us as, as human beings. Um, so that's part. There is not only the, the conscious thinking and reflecting and so on, but there is something very, yeah, I mean, mammalian <laughs> about us as well. Uh, so there are these not even collective emotions because an emotion is something that I reflect on or I can reflect on, but there is something very pre-reflective. There is a social field um, of biochemical reactions, let's say, that that also um, connects us, and 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 this is what I wanted to allude to: that there is there is not only this individual confidence and frustration going through the network, but also like more collective waves. Um, so, uh, as I said, at the point in time when I uh, was a field researcher in, in my organization, there was a bit of a collective frustration because of that unacknowledged issue of care, which then later on the organization acknowledged with some creative methods, you know, working groups and some cool experiments, which I think transcended it. Yeah. Um, but 
that leads back then to your um to your question about reflection i think it's it's really important also to have these fora where where we try to step out of these um unconscious emotions that run through our, our organization and try to reflect a bit about it yeah. Mm. yeah this is very interesting because i i i don't remember maybe it's in the paper um the word sense making uh which for mm -hmm. me like um and i didn't also i i didn't yeah, have the capacity so far to engage with sense making literature but for me those would be the cues of you know like reading this atmosphere that is mm. there and then say ah you know, we use these cues to then do sense making together, understand, and um, I think yeah, that uh, your your comment is uh, like a much more accurate about ah, uh, it's it's a collective thing. You know, it's not me uh, just with myself. It's and even yeah. if I'm one, uh, let's say reflecting on it and and being aware of it, it's because of the collective what is happening at the moment in these waves of frustration. I guess all yeah. of us have been in collaborative work, know or have felt these moments, and we're so um yeah i don't know if there is anything about uh sense making that um you could throw in here or that you have come across because i said i have not able from the literature to be able to haven't been able to build uh that link but mm -hmm. something that has been with me for many months and i'm like ah i would really like to look into that yeah yeah it's a very good question and i, I yeah i haven't thought about it but there must like, there could be a very fruitful connection i think because yeah sense making is a very long-standing powerful concept also in in the organizational literature um i'm thinking of an of an example maybe so a personal example would be maybe the uh, the sharing when i come back to the sharing so for example doing check-ins i i i you know coming from normal organizational backgrounds i was not used to that at the beginning and then i came to new zealand and uh, at most meetings there was a check-in round uh, at the beginning of the meeting that was at that time new to me and of course there is uh, there is an yeah i think what i called exuberance uh, and anxiety there is it's extremely powerful i think when when you are listened to when you are when you can show up in a group especially for a person who is um, maybe a bit more uh yeah uh, yeah, not as outgoing like like I am, for example. It's it's really it, it's a very powerful when you when you especially as a practice when you repeat it and repeat it. It's very uh, yeah. It, it's uh, sharing something about yourself, being acknowledged um, by by your teammates, by your group. I think is 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 totally powerful as a yeah, as a motivating force uh, at work. But at the same time, also, you know, in a check-in circle, I don't know if you have experienced that at the beginning, I was always not listening to what the other said because I was thinking about the next clever thing that that I that I should that I could say. Um, and you know, getting uh, over these um, ego things <laughs> uh, that really takes practice and and uh, takes time. And um, I think that connects to me a bit to sense making uh, because. It's not as easy as just ref sitting together and reflecting and making uh, making sense and saying, okay, what what is the what is the mood in our network now? I think it's it's very a very subconscious, uh, delicate thing, and it's 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 a bit more difficult than just sitting together. It's it's really about yeah becoming um, becoming more 
in a way sensitive to also to um uh yeah to emotion to intuition uh to uh to a different kind of way not not the rational logical sense making but uh more intuitional uh, sense making um and making mm. room for that making also room for vague feelings of for example i feel uncomfortable but i don't know why um and um yeah things like that yeah this uh, makes me think uh if we you could talk a little bit about the role of the the body because it's something that's also in in your research the part of embodiment and how these interactions happen and also wondering i don't know if you've come across this or if you had because mm -hmm. your experience uh was on site was in person and yeah. now we're in a very um, let's say digital world much more than than yeah. back then and many of these collectives or a lot of this collaboration in these collectives takes place uh, online so I don't know if you could um, if you have any reflection around that mm -hmm. but first yeah starting yeah. about the role of the body and the importance of this sort of um, I think in your your research is this attunement uh, between uh, bodies uh, that you talk about yeah, uh, I mean that re relates back to uh, to the notion of affect and that there is something pre-reflective, very embodied about our about our organizing, about our work working together as well. Uh, so uh, it's I think it's just important to keep that in mind and uh, to uh, to see that actually much of our organizing is not about ideas, but it's people would say in the literature about imitation. Uh, mm -hmm. So we, uh, uh, I mean, we know that from early childhood, you know, babies and little children imitating their parents, uh, their significant uh, carers. Um, so, um, yeah, it's it's really uh, about imitating uh, uh, emotional states, Im imitating uh, affective states. And, and I think being conscious of that, that there is something very fast, very subconscious, very uh sensual and uh, uh feeling based in our uh in our being uh that's that's really important and that's also an exciting area of research where there is a, a lot going on uh, uh yeah where people try to understand that a bit better yeah mm. yeah i think for us um at greater than um so there are a few people so it's very interesting when i started researching this that many people um, at the same time, started bringing in a lot more this perspective uh, from the body. I mean, some had, mm -hmm. had been trying, but there was, let's say, one of these waves of uh, embodiment, uh, to call it somehow, and yeah. wondering about, you know, what are the practices that, that we can do? Like, what are the things that are possible also mm. in these asynchronous and, um, and online um, mm. in interacting, which maybe, I guess, that or my experience is a lot, or a part of it gets lost. Uh, definitely, it's also much more difficult when you know you're in a yeah. let's say Zoom room, gallery view, and you have all of these faces. And um, yeah, in some settings, it's a bit more difficult to grasp what's um, what's going on. So yeah, yeah. like with friends, also I don't know, like getting more also ourselves, like getting more grounded, like getting more into um, yeah meditations, maybe at the start of meetings. Mm -hmm. Or also being more used to, I think it's even like a sort of practice daily that in your life you're more yeah. attuned to how you're feeling and how exactly what you were saying, these half-baked half thoughts of yeah. uh, feeling yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable, but I don't know why. And how do you bring that um, mm, yeah, on yeah. online settings? So, yeah, 
it's again, it's, it's an unfinished thought, but yeah, something I think very interesting yeah. as groups to think about how to deal with that. For me, also an unfinished thought, but something that I'm uh, concerned with because I'm, I'm writing a paper on uh, the role of events, uh, but yeah, face-to-face uh, -face events in, in this kind of organizing. But I mean, you mentioned it. I mean, and there is an individual side to this um Yeah, becoming more mindful uh, that that's already very popular with uh, yeah, all kinds of meditation and yoga and, and whatever. But what I think is that there could be also a very powerful relational side to this. Um, and I think it, it works. What I have seen and also my experience during the pandemic, Zoom works really well also for 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 creating more intimate spaces, for creating uh yeah uh, vulnerable conversations i think for some people it's even easier via zoom because they don't have to fully commit with, with their whole body they would just have to commit with the uh with the window and with the rest of my body i'm i'm still in and you know in my flat in my safe space um so i think yeah uh for conversations uh check-ins uh and 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 it it works really well i think yeah so there there is there is certain uh There is there is some advantages to it. Um, I think there is there is a huge kind of underutilized um, resource in our groups to also become more mindful and become more present to each other and to ourselves. Um, yeah, oftentimes it's just talked as something individual. I have to do meditation and I go on to a two week silent retreat and then I learn things about myself uh, and so on. But what I, um, a colleague of mine always said, for example, check-ins, they are, they seem a bit woo-woo. Why should I do five minutes of a, a listening circle at the beginning of a, of a work meeting? But, um, they are a really hard hitting tool for systems change over time. I think it's really this, uh, normalizing, normalizing of, um, yeah, more emotionally vulnerable conversations of conversations where we can say, okay, We don't know. We don't know. There is an uncertainty. We don't know the answer. Nobody of us knows the answer. Uh, but we have to, you know, circle around this question for a time and and uh, and become comfortable with complexity, uncertainty, uncomfortable feelings. Um, and um, yeah, what what I see in, in the research is that organizations and teams can really grow a kind of emotional vocabulary or emotional repertoire. That is very powerful. That is uh, even maybe more powerful than all these individual practices of of mindfulness and presence and so on. Yeah, this makes me think about um, two things. Like one is when I work in, let's say, settings that are a bit more traditional, and mm -hmm. we always bring the check-ins in, of course. Yeah. And then how you see that there's a sort of cynicism related to it. And yeah. well, maybe that's an own thing of when you're in between. So it's like you're in a more traditional setting and you want to move to a more self-organized, more collaborative setting. And then, of course, you're always like, you know, yes, we're doing collaborative practices. But at the end of the day, you know, we still have a hierarchy. So I understand mm. the tension there. But yeah, like leaning into it. And then what you were saying through time, where check-ins in certain um, settings can really lead you to understanding a lot more, you know, where we stand as a group and also like, what is this mm. sort of like shared wave that we are at in, in the moment. And I think that um, just because I had this experience yesterday, we had a sharing circle online mm. about the challenging topic about yeah, a network that is in a challenging uh, wave. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. Talking, 
greater than now. But it was, for me, it was a format and bringing the, the check-in and then a bit um, of the checkout as well. Yeah, you could really, I don't know, feel the different um, aspects of, um, yeah, of the situation we were in. That, you know, we, mm. there was some joy of being together. There was the sadness of the topic we were talking about. There was, like, we had the chance to share the roller coaster throughout the call as well. That I'm, you know, I'm giving up. I don't want to do this anymore. Or saying, no, okay, but, you know, I committed to this and I want to do it and mm. I want to you know, do the best uh, for this network. So just having that moment of commonly putting it together in the center, that was, yeah, very powerful. And I think yeah. super helpful for the sense making we were talking about um, before. Yeah. Yeah, it, it reminds me of it. Um, you know, there, there was my question in the beginning, what are these world, worldview shifts? Uh, and I think this is a, a this is a big one. So the first one I saw was maybe this term of co collaborative community coming back into work. But there is also one about these, um, yeah, how to approach complexity and uncertainty and how to how to do encounter or meetings. And there is an interesting piece of research by uh, Tyson Juncker-Porter, who is a mm. uh, yeah, an indigenous uh, researcher in uh, in Australia. And he, he traveled through the whole of, of Australia to the different... Um, uh, uh, yeah, communities, indigenous communities, and looked at how they do meetings, and and he came up with this analysis that, you know, we in the Western world we always try to we have our meeting room, and maybe it's a fancy meeting room with uh, with uh, yeah with with beanie bags and and post its and so on, but we always you know we come together around mostly a table with our uh, laptops and we have an agenda and we have a problem and we want to solve it and yes we solve the problem, uh, and then. Um, yeah, most of the time it doesn't work because there are a lot of unintended consequences with every solution that we produce. And there are a lot of conflicts. And uh, yeah, maybe in the end we can solve these conflicts and come together and talk about what, what didn't work. But he says indigenous people, they they do it the other way around. They don't start from the problem. And that's, that's what I really also saw in New Zealand with Maori uh, meeting culture. My, my kids were in a, in a Maori, uh, in a Maori based school as well. So in 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 a Maori, for example, uh, meeting there is there is first an enormous amount of time of getting to know each other, of 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 explaining mm -hmm. who I am, from which family I am, what is my background, and so on. So it's really building an intentional culture, building relationships first, and then getting into a yeah into a conversation, into a particip participatory conversation about the problem. What is the problem? What is the problem behind the problem? Trying to see problem from different pers perspectives because you know under complexity we can't <laughs> nobody sees the whole thing um and and only then coming to a solution in the end um and and I, I find that very powerful and, and 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 a big worldview shift that um yeah the the, the culture building the sp spiritual part and the relational part actually comes first um so that was a a good learning from for me yeah <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was, as I was listening to you also came to mind. Um, yeah. I'm going to interview as well. Um, it's called like Dorian uh, Cave and, and Wendy from Deep Adaptation Forum. Oh, and yeah. we're going to be talking about um, their sharing circle about decolonialization. Mm. And in there, well, he has a case study um, about this circle. And then he talks about communities of practice 
versus I don't remember the exact term, but it's like um, intentional learning spaces or something like that. And the difference was exactly what we were pointing out now that these learning spaces, relationships come first. Mm-hmm. So it's recurring meetings throughout time, relationships come first, and then the learning comes out of the relationships and the challenges that might come up or what they might want to explore together. Whereas a community of practice is mainly based on those challenges, which is what we, let's say, mostly used in our Western culture. Yeah. I also found that like uh, quite interesting. Like, what do you mm. put at the center um, yeah. of it? There's even a combination of both, right? Uh, but that thinking about that is also interesting. Also thinking about how we work on the, and I think in my research that came up was this challenge of sustainability of these groups. So, and uh, what I read out from your research as well is bringing these relationships at the center and from this, letting the rest emanate. And of course, you need this alignment with uh, why or purpose or whatever thing that brings uh, people together. But uh, yeah, bringing it always back to these, uh, to these relationships. So, yeah, I think that's, that's very powerful. And yeah, I mean, I myself, I'm a bit skeptical because you asked, is purely online possible or what can we do online? I think we can do a lot, but I'm a bit skeptical about mm-hmm. purely online. I mean, I think as a team and for a project, uh, it, it is possible to have a, a completely remote team. But I said, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, we have this paper that is not yet published where I work with a Spanish colleague uh, who has done also a big ethnography about a, an open source online community. And so we compare our studies and say, okay, we have these two uh, quite successful uh, decentralized networks here. What is working here? What can we learn from them? And what we saw was really a a very vibrant event culture and face-to-face event culture. You know, big planned events like uh, yearly conferences or retreats, uh, but also... um, a lot of small events, kind of bottom-up events at Inspiral. Of course, I saw a lot of, you know, hacker meetups or uh, or uh, monthly lunches or, or running group or whatever it is. Uh, so uh, a lively culture of work and non-work events that comes top-down and, and bottom-up. That's that's really important also to, um, yeah, to to keep the passion going, but also as a forum for having conflicts and and addressing issues. Um, yeah, because as you said, we and that's I think also one of those big research questions. Um, there are not really good examples of organizations that can maintain a collaborative culture for a long time. Um, and I, so in my research, I make the point that is because of these effective oscillations because it gets so intense. First, everybody is so overexcited and it's so fulfilling and and so on, and then frustration sets in and people leave and we are exhausted and and so on and there is anxiety or whatever, or things we can't talk about. So it's a bit like a social movement, also very powerful, but then also breaking, um, uh, yeah, breaking down swiftly. Uh, so it's. Uh, that's actually a question that's puzzling me. And I mean, you have maybe even more experience, you have much more practical experience than me in, in following very successful networks. So I would be curious also to hear what what your take on this or your experience on, on, on this is as well. Yeah. Yeah. So to the um, in-person and online, uh, from a practical perspective now, I haven't really researched this. Mm. And this is something 
that we, for example, at Greater Than are try to be very careful about, even if we have people from New Zealand um, going through Europe and to getting to the US to try to meet in person, even if it's once a year because of yeah. the distance, but in coming together and spending time together. So I think that that's something that it does have a very high value. And I think that in one of the networks I was uh, going through COVID and not being able to meet in person, which was one of the things that was kind of like holding us together for a long time. It just accelerated a lot. I think that the mm -hmm. process of, you know, maybe something that was happening already, but um, that by not being able to meet in person accelerated. Um, yeah, this coming to, in my understanding, but it's not shared um, an ending phase, but yeah, that's the, that's another story. And, um, and about the sustainability, um, that's I think that's an interesting question, also only from a practical perspective mm. uh, of what I have observed or we're observing with a couple of networks that have undergone massive changes, like they were born 10 years ago. And mm. now they seem they are going into another complete different phase. And we're still um, I have talked to this with a few colleagues, and by now we all agree that it's you know, it's too early to understand what's going on. Is it that you know what they set out to do is no longer relevant? It has gone into different yeah. um, initiatives that are maybe addressing more specific topics. Like I really don't um, don't know. I find that very interesting. These waves of yeah organization yeah. and social movements and how. Inspiral, for example, came partially, in my understanding as well, in the inspiration from Occupy, uh, Wall Street, how one thing uh, goes into, into the next. And I don't know, like Greater Than, for example, is a, is a collective coming out of Inspiral, which is, well, a network that hosts loads of different collectives, but how also, depending on what you want to do, you adopt one form yeah. or the other. Yeah, at the moment, I'm not able to say more um, about it like my thoughts are not more uh, yeah bad. but it's of course always those questions that come up like how can you scale that how can you make it uh, durable and and sustainable um those are yeah i mean there are some hunches but no definite answers yet i think uh, yeah yeah in the terms of scaling i do like uh richard bartlett's approach uh, around micro solidarity yeah. Also yeah. about also he puts the relationships in the middle and how with these little groups then and and then you replicate yeah uh, so I think that right now that's the type of yeah scaling that I understand that works uh, understanding that these relationships are key um, I haven't seen so far other ways um, yeah scaling relationship like it's challenging enough <laughs> with just a few people. No, and I think that's very important. And also touches um, uh, Rich's work here touches also on on a very deep myth or modern myth because um, that's also what uh, what was for me a bit an aha moment uh, was uh, the work of uh, the anthropologist er Ernest Gellner. Um, so I think he died already, but he was a 20th century uh, anthropologist, and he came up with this notion of modular man. He said actually what defines modernity or the 20th century is actually this kind of massification and separation. So uh, in pre-modern times, most, uh, you know, uh, that's the micro-solidarity or Dun Dunbar's, uh, uh, Dunbar's research argument that uh, historically uh, societies and organizations were uh, organized as nested communities and were not scaling up massively, but scaling across um, 
like cells, duplicating like cells in a way and, and keeping connections as, as networks. Uh, because that's that's our human scale. We can't have a collaborative community that's much larger than 150, 200 people because yeah, our relationships break down. And and so he says, what modernity did was actually to take us out of these um, integrated concepts. You know, we we were living and working together on the farm or in in the workshop. It was all like family, private uh, club, and so on. Religion was all very close together and one work life in a way. And he says uh, it has been split. We have been split into different roles and role modules. So one module is work. Another one is the nuclear family. And another one is maybe your church community or a bowling club or, or whatever. And um, so we fulfill these uh, kind of strange. We don't show up as full persons at work, but as a, a role module. And uh, I think that's uh, that was a very powerful uh insight to me in a way that is um that actually uh, getting out of modernity we need we need also a new kind of mm. architecture social social architecture in a way and so i also like microsoft the micro solidarity approach and uh, dunbar's research um, yeah yeah that's interesting because that's one of the things that came up uh, for me and um in the research i was doing with uh, greater than so that thinking about this modularity in in some let's say in some settings of our being together, that uh, framing them, let's say, even in con- unconsciously as work, is that people are not able to, you know, show up as mm-hmm. uh, they would want to, or as it would even be necessary for a fully collaborative practice, because you know we're scared, or we want to show we're smart, um, or you know we don't want to show our frustration sometimes because well you know maybe we're afraid about what others might think if we let's say bring in what could be seen like as negative yeah um, emotions uh, so that, that kind of like limited the possibilities the sense making the potential to engage in conflicts or tension yeah. it was uh, exactly and then um that, that there were areas though and now is maybe where we transition a little bit this is a connection i was just doing today about mm. Mm, what's the um, so if we go beyond this or there are things we do let's say that take us beyond work for example at greater than mm-hmm. we have what we call a solidarity well so we pull funds together and we try to support people that might be um, undergoing so people from greater than members that might be mm-hmm. undergoing some financial stress at the moment or parental leaves or this sort of thing yep this might be that might sound super traditional for companies, but us we're all self-employed, so we try to cover for those things as well. That's one thing. There's also like a dream called so we're called Greater Than, and the dream is called Greater Lands. So mm. how could it be to at some point in the future share a piece of land yeah. and do something there together? So like these um, sort of dreams, and I think now I'm relating it to your other paper that is about fantasies. Yeah. So my um yeah, so my my learning here was that having these things that go beyond the workspace and projecting into a common future, a, a better future together, yeah. um, how that helps transcend some of these limitations that we have uh, of this uh, because of this work modularity. Mm. Yeah, just wanted to share that with you. Yeah. <laughs> that we could transition to the other paper. Which That's is a also- very elegant transition, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
uh, and inconspicuous. I know, but yeah, I mean, it it have, much has changed, of course. Also, I mean, this modularity was. I mean, when I look at the generation of my father, for example, born in the 1950s or something, and then uh, with his work life in the 70s and 80s and so on. In this generation, I've observed this with you know with with my friends as well. It was much clearer that you know uh, my dad was a even a different person at work. Uh, so it was, for example, very, um, very social and bringing people together, but at home, more, uh, more introvert and um, concentrated on himself and so on. So it's, and, and, and I think many, it, it was much clearer back then. And uh, in, in our generation, of course, also in the mainstream world of work, these boundaries already broke down and we are all kind of encouraged nowadays, at least as knowledge workers, as privileged knowledge workers to, yeah, to fulfill ourselves at work and there is no boundary between work and life. I mean, it's nothing new uh, to us and it has led also in the, into the epidemic of burnout and, and whatever. Um, and of course, big companies like, I mean, look at those Google campuses and Apple campuses, they also thrive on that. So uh, thrive that we bring bring in all our passion mm um at work but maybe yeah it, it's a, it's a good transition to the other paper because in the other paper i was really looking at at the issue of control and uh how actually collaborative distributed organizations could be held together and yeah that the, the, the literature says okay uh how was this done in the past in traditional organization there is of course the the whip uh and you have to do what i say that's the, the most traditional thing but then in the, I don't know, 80s and 90s came the idea of normative control. You know, it's these, uh, yeah, we all wear the same T-shirt. We are the coolest company. We we work together. We are all the same. And I mean, it's a, it's a very powerful, uh, if dangerous thing, <laughs> uh, in uh, playing on this in-group, out-group dynamics. But it also doesn't work for our knowledge economy anymore nowadays because we need creativity. And if we are all the same and we don't have uh, enough diversity, we also don't have a lot of creativity and new thoughts. So there came this idea of neo-normative control that I was alluding to, this idea of bring your full self to work, um, self-actualize at work, um, you know, become a better person through your work and find your purpose. And I mean, uh, I'm as an academic, uh, I'm... I've fallen myself victim to this entrepreneurial self uh, myself. And um, yeah, as I said, it, there are very complex exploitation dynamics. Of course, uh, big organizations have uh, fancy uh, job ads, but in the end, there are the same old hierarchies and the same old um, uh, also ownership structures. Uh, so um, it's uh, uh, it has become very frustrating, and uh, it's the reason, also one main reason, why we have come into this, yeah, issue of overwork and and burnout. But yeah, all these things were not kind of applicable in 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 the self organized, um, commons based cooperative world uh, of networks that that we are talking about. And so I I thought these oscillations and these affective movements, this excitement and frustration, and this almost social movement-like dynamics, these are what what hold these organizations together that give, you know, in, in oftentimes in co-working spaces, for example, where I've done some research, they always say we have this special buzz, we have this, yeah, this special culture, this atmosphere here. And and that's actually the prime economic resource. That's um that's the affective commons in a way. Um 
that's what holds these organizations together and that's what this other paper is about um mm. yeah um what I really appreciated also about uh, your research, I remember uh, back in the day um, that there are lots of papers that, you know, like criticize the subjects of study and just look at the critical elements. Mm -hmm. But it was your point to now it was, ah, OK, so, you know, we have these effective oscillations, but that's also what it's holding it together. It's just like a different yeah. way of um, working. And it's not, yeah. you know, you, can, you kind of like find a way to make some of that explicit. And I understand that the same with the fantasies um, that you talk about in, in the second papers about this effective uh, control that it's, well, you try to reframe it, let's say, in the modern world. And it's even if it sounds, let's say, or for me, coming from the self-organized setting, it's like effective control sounds horrible. Um, <laughs> Maybe we have to invent a more appealing, uh, yeah. But let's say it's like you're describing a, a phenomenon that, um, that happens um, for these correlative settings. So it's like, not that we're saying, ah, you know, it's it's through the effective ones that you're controlled as a, as a human being, but describing, I guess, or my other thing is ways of interacting that happen just because we're humans. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm often criticized as an academic that I, uh, yeah, uh, that I'm not critical enough in no, a way that's that- that's great. And, um, but I'm, I'm, I think we need in our time of transition, we need these experiments and we need to learn from, uh, yeah, from pioneers and, uh, and see what works, what doesn't work and try to translate it. And um, yeah, so that what's, that is kind of what excites me. <laughs> yeah. So I was wondering if we could go a little bit deeper into those fantasies. Mm. Yeah, uh, and just uh, because you talk about, I think now I'm not sure if it's three or four. You talk about the spiritual, the entrepreneurial, the tribal. And then yeah. this wholeness one, I think it's what we were uh, discussing um, yeah. just before. So if you could just talk a little bit um, about what those um, what those are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the context of this study was really a, a management trend that I observed or tried to analyze. So it's for me, it started in 2011, 12 with Gary Hamel and then came, you know, Frederick Laloux's book and then Holacracy and this kind of it was a formidable little management trend around self-organization uh, coming from yeah all kinds of different directions coming together, also post-capitalist, uh, commons-based stuff. And I tried to look at this uh, trend and organizations there and, and, and see, um, yeah, what were the main discourses there? What brought passion, you know, which ideas brought passion in? Uh, and maybe to start also with the idea of fantasy. So uh, I worked with a psychodynamic framework from, from Jacques Lacan. And there is this very basic idea of Jacques Lacan. I think that he says, okay, we, we come into this world as babies. And we are, as soon as we come into this world, as we recognize ourselves in the mirror, he says he has this theory of the mirror stage, but the mirror is in a way, I'm recognizing my ego. I'm becoming socialized in the world of ideas and, uh, and discourses and so on and, and symbols. I lose this feeling of wholeness because, you know, in the womb or maybe even before we come into this world, there is wholeness. There is a feeling of wholeness. And then I come into this world of dualities and pain and, um, and, and, you know, male and female and good and bad and so on. Um, and, um, he says, as human beings, we are always looking to reclaim that wholeness. So the basic idea is behind every idea that I'm, um, um, yeah, convinced of. 
there is um, there is always this search for wholeness. You know, you know if uh, if I build this, you know, you you mentioned your idea of buying land. If we build this economy of collaborative communities, decentralized communities that are networked and um, yeah, a bit of an, a cool anarchist, uh, uh, an anarcho-socialist society, uh, then um, then the world will be a better place. And so it's, uh, but there's also small ideas. Uh, behind every idea, there is this, uh, there, there, there lurks a fantasy of wholeness. And so he says, when I'm really, um, uh, really convinced of something, I'm passionate about it. But uh, the English word passion is, is not good enough because it's very positive. So in German, for example, we have the word Leidenschaft, or in French, it is the term uh, jouissance. Um, and this is what, what Jacques Lacan meant. It, it, it's positive and negative. So, for example, if I'm a marathon runner, um, I'm really passionate about running this marathon, but at the same time, it's, it's also a real pain, you know, running 42 kilometers, but I'm also enjoying this pain or... There is research, you know, about Chouissance or Leidenschaft of uh, cooks, for example, who really, or firemen who really enjoy their stressful jobs. You become passionate, but if you're passionate about something, there is always an element of pain uh, uh, associated with it and enjoyment in pain. So it's all very paradox and subconscious. So that's what I like uh, to uh, to think about. So that's, that's the basic idea. And so I, I looked at, which kind of main discourses and underlying fantasies and passions can I find in this management discourse? And can I find in these companies that I, that I observed? And as you said, we found then in this paper, uh, three fantasies. One was a bit of what, what we call a spiritual fantasy, then the entrepreneurial fantasy and a tribal fantasy. And uh, the spiritual is maybe, I mean, a good example is Frederic Laloux's uh, work, for example, where you, um, yeah, where there is this idea of finding a purpose, of finding also personal development and personal transformation through work um, and associating your own journey for purpose with the purpose of the organization. So um, it's, um, yeah, it's this uh, pleasure and pain of finding a truer, of unfolding a, a truer self, a, a higher self that is very powerful, that has a lot of positive um aspects um and it's uh yeah you know becoming a becoming a more developed human being that's not what we learn in traditional organizations there we are more in infantilized but it comes of course also with negative consequences this fantasy of you know in in group out in group out group dynamics or you know I, i've been at events where people became quite arrogant because you know they say you know I'm I'm in this teal and this is yeah this person must be on an orange stage and so on um yeah you know there are there are all these kind of um different difficult yeah. dynamics that come with with this idea of spirituality and yeah development with entrepreneurial fantasy let me think of a good example that was more is more was more kind of Dominant. So we make the argument that all of these three fantasies are always present, or where in this, at this time that we research present, but maybe more present in in different contexts, in certain contexts. So the entrepreneurial fantasy was maybe more in these bossless organizations, bossless consulting networks, and tech firms, and so on, where there is this idea of okay, if if we have this free communication. And everyone, even a person who is there for the first day in this organization can be critical and we can 
we can become this uh, cool network of innovators, uh, uh, flat innovators. Then uh, we become, then, then there are these infin infinite possibilities. You know, we, uh, we become rich or successful as a company. I grow as a person through my work and there is this yeah infinite possibilities. Uh, I mean, there is a lot of research around that that comes, of course, also with its downsides of, you know, individualizing systemic problems or, um, you know, vulnerable people thriving, you know, people who are seeking attention are thriving the most in these organizations. So there, there is also a lot of um, things that can, can go wrong. Um, and then the last was the tribal. So we had the spiritual, entrepreneurial, and then the tribal uh, is this, uh, you know, idea of belonging, finding belonging, finding uh, my work family. So people were often talking about work families. That was also, I think, the most prominent discourse and fantasy at, at Inspiral. Um, yeah, finding personal um, belonging, development, intrinsic motivation in a supportive community of people uh, where you, um, yeah, where you support each other, where you have these yeah, mixture between work and life, between friendship and professional life and um, being in this amazing developmental community, which works. I mean, um, I think at Inspiral, most people said, actually, we started because we wanted to change the world with our social entrepreneurial ventures. But actually, what was our most successful thing was how people grew as persons uh, in uh, throughout these years being in, the, in in this network. So... But of course, it comes also with downsides like peer pressure or uh, intolerance in group, outgroup dynamics. Um, yeah, these um, norms, uh, you know, there are, there can easily can be uh, school school dynamics where there are the cool kids around the block and then the newbies and and so on. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. this was the idea of of this paper, yeah, and to say that, um, yeah, it's this oscillation between. The positives and the negatives it, it would it would really uh, excitement and frustration what holds uh, these organizations together and we have to become more competent in reflecting on that in a way reflecting mm. on these movements yeah 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 this has this common theme with the other paper about exactly yeah. this movement this oscillation it seems like as you were saying it's like a paradox um but th that's part of the complexity it's both at the same time yeah. it's kind of like the yin and yang together uh like working and so how we learn to deal with with that which is also in my understanding very different than the traditional world in which you know things are clear and just one thing is happening but here it's yeah. everything at the same time and this requires as well, I think, like different skills and practices and ways of understanding how we are together to navigate all of this and in order as well to sustain ourselves uh, yeah. through time, not expect that things are going to be as simple as we're, let's say, usually yeah. told that they there are. There are no ideal solutions and probably there is not even balance or maybe because the, the, the typical answer would be, okay, we have now all the fantasies and yeah. And effective oscillation. So we have to find a balance and, and so on and find our way through that. But I think that's not really possible. I think mm -hmm. we have to, to go through the motions and be excited about something and be frustrated, uh, but come together and share both the excitement and, uh, and the frustration in a way and become able to deal with that and stay with this <laughs> uncertainty and our own 
yeah with this paradox and our our, our own yeah it's part of the human condition too that we are just imperfect yeah i think yeah yeah there's um I mean, this is an association. It's very far away, but it's like, I really like it. That's from um, my favorite yoga teacher. You know, there's mm -hmm. this tree pose in which you're trying to hold your balance with only one feet. And then uh, how she does it is that you, you move mm -hmm. through the exercise because she says, you know, there's no point in staying in balance. Like this is not mm -hmm. reality. It's about moving and flowing. And in that, trying to find that, what you might understand as balance and then of course at some point you fall down and then well you start yeah. over again and you keep this movement that there's no point in yeah. trying to stay still all the time so that's kind of that's like cool, what i yeah. hear from your from what you're sharing uh with us and i think this would be like a good um yeah point for for closing our yeah. conversation which we touch upon so many um, topics. And I'm very happy that I think that through it, hopefully we made your research um, a little bit more uh, accessible by by uh, explaining. I even like uh, realized of different aspects that I hadn't been able to uh, do still uh, only through, through reading. So yeah, thank you so much for that. We talked about the affective oscillations. Let's say that's, let's say the core uh, part of uh, one of your papers. And then the second one were these uh, three different fantasies but then we also touched upon many things i'm going to forget some probably <laughs> feel free to complete but also we talked about uh, indigenous knowledge and how already there these relationships start and that's the um the central point and then we also talked about um the check-ins and for example how something so simple brought into time perspective and evolution can uh, really support um as well the yeah the capacity of uh, of a collective to move through maybe these motions uh that we were just talking about and also how is it this us being together and these things that happen that are kind of like pre-reflective uh, it's uh, before we're able to make sense mm -hmm. about that. like all of these or many of these things we have been talking about happen in this common setting and it's not me in isolation so again it's breaking I really like that it's breaking this um, yeah, illusion of individuality it's yeah. really us um, coming um, coming together yeah I don't know if you have like any other point that you would like to highlight from what we talk i mean we did talk about the evolution of work uh, quite a yeah. bit um traditional settings um yeah with um the different uh literature that has brought you from already yeah, like over 10 years ago almost 15 years ago uh to to nowadays and has in influencing you so thank you for those references we will also link them yeah um, no uh I think the the only last thing that inspires inspires a thought is is that you said uh, it's it's about breaking this illusion of uh, individuality. So that's actually probably the most basic worldview shift that people uh, couldn't give me an answer to back when I started my interviews. Is this yeah? It's almost like a spiritual, uh, yeah, cosmological shift in uh, you know going away from from our worldview that we are all separated individuals and coming into a relational understanding of uh of our world um yeah yeah thank you so much uh for having spent uh, this time with me and sharing your all your very valuable knowledge i hope this is a start and there can be many more conversations following and um yeah very excited maybe one or two words where is your 
let's say next steps, uh, kind of like, what is your research leading you to at the moment? That's something I just realized I'm very curious about. Like, what is your, what's burning? Yeah, there, there's one line of thought going into the direction of space, um, the events and uh, actually organization or this new form of organization, understanding it as a, yeah, as events or encounters that actually what is organization is when we come together and when we have uh, encounters, events together and, and see how we can, uh, what we can learn from that and how we can organize the space and the places uh, of our work reorganize them i think that's a very pressing issue and otherwise i'm going a bit more into this direction of really teamwork um and embodiment so really because collaboration really this intimate co-creation has long been seen as a very cognitive thing and maybe a bit of trust building into it but um seeing it as a fully embodied multi-sensory activity and exploring which kind of multi-sensory uh, patterns are going on in, in everyday collaboration. That is that is something that I'm really keen to do some research on. Oh, yeah, that sounds very exciting. Um, yeah, looking forward to reading, um, let's say, the final product or maybe even before <laughs> you can give us hints to a future interview about uh, what came up for you. That would be very, very cool. The same goes for me. I'm really curious yeah. to read what you, uh, what you see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Bernhard. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much for the invitation. Bye. Ata. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Effectively. If you did, please leave us a review and subscribe to The How, a podcast by Greater Than.